0: All right, Steve, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thanks very much. Thanks for having me.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, you and I were just going through uh, the 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 jaws of audio and video hell, trying to figure it out, but we're good now, right?
1: We're perfect.
0: <laughs> uh, cool. So you're in your office, you said?
1: Correct. Yeah, I'm here in uh, Austin. I, I was living in LA. I was in LA for 13 years, uh, but originally a Jersey native and uh, I recently made the the move to Austin just because I I absolutely fell in love with the city. Uh so I've been here for the last uh year or so.
0: Man, what a what a great city it is. I have made it somewhat my second home. Ooh. For the last 6-7 years I was managing a band out of Austin called Alpha Rev, a guy named Casey McPherson and um and then just turned into making all kinds of friends and Uh, yeah, it's, it's a wonderful place. It's just, you know, it's one of those like microcosms of like, you can come to the United States and know a lot about the U S but until you go to Austin, it's kind of like, you don't know anything. Once you go there, you're like, that's what it is.
1: (laughs) That's a good way of putting it. It's funny. I, I, so I travel a lot and, um, not every city resonates in the same way with me, but when I came to Austin uh, for the first time a few years ago, I just immediately fell in love with it and wanted didn't want to go back home to LA I wanted to stay here it just has so much it just has such great um, yeah. energy is the best way I could put it there's a lot going on there's so much creativity there's a great entrepreneurial uh, undercurrent and the people are great and as you know and it's just a wonderful place and it's and it's growing it's definitely an emerging uh, hot spot. <laughs>
0: It is, it is. I I, I made the uh, very subtle yet regrettable mistake of not buying property with a friend of mine there in 2015 when he offered me to. On, on the east side, it was a nice house. He's like, go in on this house with me. And I was like, ah, oh, dude, no, there's no reason for that. I, I don't need to do that right now. And he, he flipped the house years later for um, an amount of money I will not disclose, but I'm very, very sad I didn't get involved. <laughs> um,
1: Totally hear you. Yeah. I, I mean, um, I just read something because Tesla is uh, has moved their headquarters here, and right. they're building this huge. I think it's called a giga plant or something. And they're building homes around the Tesla um, plant. And I read something about the the uh, uh, what's it called property values or, or, or the home values going up something like forty five percent. Over the last, right. I don't know, uh, this, over the last year, it's yeah, it's it's an it's really insane, isn't that like it? insane.
0: Yeah, well, I I recently saw an interview with uh, with Mr. Musk himself, and he actually said that I think, and I'm probably misquoting, but it was something like seven gigaplants could power the entire world. It only takes seven. He's wow. like seven gigaplants powers, everything, not just Tesla cars and this and that. Like we're talking lights and homes, electricity grids, you name it, seven. And he goes, we're building one here. And I was like, wow. Like if that's possible, not only is it incredible, but it's also terrifying because then it makes it really easy for anybody who wants to target the world's energy grid to, to to nail down the seven places to attack.
1: But, That's true. And when you put it that way,
0: <laughs> <yeah>.
1: <laughs> I did really well.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, what a, what an incredible thing for Austin. Um, so, so, but you were just on tour, right? So, well, actually let me back up before you even answer that. It's my fault for getting ahead. Um, you have been on tour and you've been doing this for a long time. Uh, can you give some, just some background and a little bit of, uh, you know, foreground? into what's been going on with you
1: yeah thanks for asking i so it's kind of a an odd full circle experience um to put it uh one way so when i was in high school and i was finding myself like everybody finding my identity and really didn't know who i was I, i guess i was still like trying to figure out what music i liked and who i was and um, I stumbled upon, sort of, because she was really everywhere, uh, um, Alanis Morissette. And I also was a huge fan of Lisa Loeb and Tori Amos and um, a lot of these artists. And I just was uh, so enraptured by by their music and what they were doing and how they pre- presented themselves. And so I started um, handing out copies of their albums to classmates and bootlegs of their concerts back when that was a thing and buying all their you know memorabilia at the like you know the vinyl store and i had all their backstage passes i had posters all over my room and one day i was in the car with my father and he goes you know you you should be a because i was about a year or two out from going to college he goes you should be a publicist.'" And I, I didn't know what that was. It was the first time I'd heard that. And I said, "What does that mean? Is that like a publisher of a book?" He goes, right. "Like a seventeen-year-old came and asked." And he goes, uh, "No, it's a publicist is somebody that promotes things." And you know, you, I guess he saw in me that I like to promote things naturally. That I liked, I would tell stories about places that I'd been. I'd tell stories about. I loved storytelling. Uh, but I really loved music and music was sort of my into my career. And so um, I went to college for it. I studied it and immediately out after graduating, kind of while moonlighting at a real estate, I was, I was working for a real estate PR firm, moonlighting starting this company grapevine PR, which was originally a music PR company, but I didn't know what I was doing. Um, <laughs> anyway, it's, mm-hmm off um and i basically asked to come in I'm like nine months into my career and i'm asked to come into the office and they said what are you doing you have this company i was on the front page of the news the business section of the newspaper the asbury park press in new jersey and they asked me to come in and they basically give me an ultimatum so i left that was 2007 and cut to it's now been 15 years and we work with tech clients celebrity clients um consumer brands and uh high profile experts that could be authors and so forth. So nice, nice. I just finished so not only getting the experience to become Lisa Loeb's actual publicist years later, an
0: artist
1: <laughs> me, but then to go on tour with Alanis Morissette, um, because I manage her husband Sola, He's a fantastic hip hop artist, really talented. Ah, uh, getting to be part of that experience, and it was the twenty fifth anniversary of the Jagged Little Pill tour, which was the first concert I had ever gone to. So just this wow full circle experience that I can't even put into words. I'm still trying to grasp the the gravity of it. Uh, what that means to me in my own life, but uh, <laughs> really an amazing an amazing experience.
0: Wow that that's that's such a cool story, and and I can say. Uh, at least from firsthand experience, how radical it is to literally come up with these types of people, these types of artists and characters, and then to start doing business with them or playing music with them. It's totally, in the moment, it's obscure. You're Mm. like, there's no way I can appreciate this. I remember the first time I met Lisa Loeb was at a, I was managing a kid's, artist band, right? Like they do kids music. And Lisa Loeb was on the same festival on a different stage. And a friend of mine said, Hey, do you want to go see Lisa Loeb? I said, yeah, I saw that video when I was a child, like the, you know, the one where she's kind of walking around the house doing the whole thing. And Yeah, yeah, exactly. Stay. And I went to the stage and there she was. And I was like, that's Lisa Loeb. And, and then afterwards her and I chatted for probably half an hour, having a great conversation just around music itself. And I, I I was like, what is happening right now? I'm talking to Lisa Loeb, <laughs> but um, obviously your, your experience with her and, and Alanis is on a much higher level, but I, I can appreciate how uh, pinch yourself moment that is like, it's such an interesting experience, right?
1: It's, so weird because when you're in it, and I know exactly what you mean when you're in it, it's, you can't even like, I was literally on, uh, there's so many moments like I'm thinking in terms of uh, with Lisa and also on the tour of being on the bus and, or, or just, or interacting with, with um, Alanis and Solai. I mean, I interact with Solai d- daily because I manage him, but interacting, just, just being part of the moment and, trying to take it in and it's because it's so, because it's no longer, I mean, I used to sit in class and daydream about experiences that I'm now, and not just in these two scenarios, but in others where they're literally happening. And it's like really bizarre and surreal and not being, what I found is you can't really, you can't really um, understand it until you're out of it. And then you can look back. And I had this moment a couple of weeks ago, I was in New York, and I was sitting in a coffee shop and it just hit me. It was, I call it um, not a breakdown, but a breakup, not the way that we usually talk about it, because I literally started tearing up and I was so overwhelmed by gratitude and just like, it's so hard to put into words, but it's been just an amazing experience. And I'm still learning things about it um and, and about myself after after it happened and i had a similar moment like uh experience i should say about um mm. decade ago i was i was uh the publicist for a, an amazing like guitar virtuoso his name is monty Pittman, and he's oh dude the- i know monty yeah that's, know, monty. that's awesome yeah he is seriously one of the most talented musicians uh, of any 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 time, I think he's incredible, and I was publicizing him. I was working as his publicist for a couple album releases, and it was when he was on Madonna's MDNA tour. And Madonna was another artist that I mean, for many people, but also one that I really looked up to and inspired me. And I got to join part of her MDNA tour in Europe. Um, wow! And so that experience to be—I I think it was still in my—it was like I just turned thirty. Um so many similarities to the experience now on Alanis's tour, but yet so much more that I've learned uh, since then and just it's so again it's so hard to put into words it's more of like a just a, a general feeling of getting to getting to go through this experience with this group of people, this tightly knit group of people that, you, that is just such a unique, I mean, going on tour is just such a unique experience. It's so hard to, to
0: well, uh, well it's, you know, it's the carnival, it's the circus. Yeah. I mean, people don't realize that going on tour is literally saying, Hey, Barnum and Bailey, give me a job. That's what it is. You know, it's, it's, uh, and, and, and the experiences you get with these people are so uh microcosmic. It, it, it only happens in that space at that time and only a handful of people get to experience it. And you can't explain that to somebody who hasn't done it. There's, there's no way you can explain that experience. Um, And, and, and what's really interesting is once you come off tour, mm. you're happy, right? You're like, Oh my God, my own bed, my own kitchen, my own food. But then after about a week, you're like, get me back out there. Let's yes. go, let's go. Yeah,
1: I remember the, uh, that's a perfect way of putting it. The first, uh, so uh, so I was on pockets of the tour, uh, on, on certain legs of the tour. I wasn't from beginning to end, but I was on certain legs. The first night, which was actually here in Austin, they uh, kicked off the tour in Austin. Um, I went on the bus from Austin to Dallas, quick trip. And it was my first time ever in a bunk on a bus, so there was that whole experience.
0: Wait, wait, well, we, we, we call that the coffin because, yes. uh, you know, you, you, as a touring musician, you dream about finally getting on a bus. I did for years. Yeah. I was like, what's it like to be on a bus? And then you finally get on there and you're like, I'm sleeping in a six by three coffin. And if this thing hits any sort of bump or, or other vehicle, that's what this becomes an actual coffin and it's terrifying it is terrifying
1: it's uh, that's a great way of putting it because i uh you you hear like hearing the road underneath and and you're in this it's like there's there's that whole experience of being on this like you said this moving you know uh machine and being in this uh small um like you said coffin but after that show, I was heading back to Austin and the next show was, um, Arkansas. And I remember saying to Solai or somebody else on the, uh, on the, well, I mean, on, on the team, um, in, in the, in the touring family, I said, Hmm, I'm thinking about going on to the next show <laughs> because you got the touring bug. Um, yep. it's like you, it's such a, yeah. And then you do you miss home and then you do miss it um, because it just has this energy about it. And and for me, again, like, I mean, this is I, I went on a few, you know, a handful of the shows. I didn't go like like everybody else did from beginning to end um, day. You know, that's it's intense. And I watched just how hard everybody worked. Um, I, I had so much. I just, I was so amazed watching just so um, ha- how everybody worked so hard day after day, night after night um, to make it run so smoothly.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, that's the thing people don't appreciate, and, and it's not their fault for not appreciating it. But there's so much that goes into a big tour like that. Like you know, it's like oh, the glitz and the glamour, but my god, the amount of of. Power and the amount of hands it takes to get a simple hour and a half concert off the ground is outrageous. It's actually outrageous. Um, and the costs associated with it uh, is also hard to appreciate. And so you've done it. You're like, Oh, the ba- the, b- a single bus itself costs between two and $4,000 a day between the gas and the driver, the bus itself Wow. And then, and then you're talking multiple buses. And then you're talking 18 wheelers who are carrying the production. Yep. Then you're talking, Oh, that's a similar cost. Plus the production itself. Then you're talking about uh, the stage hands. Then you're talking about um, the crew front of house uh, you know, y- you name it. And you're like, Oh my God, on a daily basis to to play in one arena, to play a staple center or to play uh, you know, someplace like a uh, Mercedes Benz arena in, in Atlanta, you're talking a hundred grand a day to just play one note, to play yeah. a note. And that is so hard to imagine when you're not in it. There, there, there's no way to appreciate that. This thing is a massive, massive machine. And um, was that, was that kind of mind blowing for you to just be in the thick of it?
1: Yeah, I think, to see, I had such an appreciation now. I mean, not that I didn't before, but (laughs) to see it from a different perspective of, of the, just the logistical uh, part of it, of like leaving all the, leaving the budget and everything out, just the logistical part of Mm. everybody involved and everybody having a specific role and repeating this almost night after night. I mean, there were, you know, there's off days and so forth, but, but literally, I mean, repeating it, you, the tear down, the, you know, putting it back up, going rolling onto the next city and how grueling it is and how nobody made it look grueling. Everybody
0: just hold right. Right. it off seamlessly. Right. Well, you know what? New appreciation for tour managers. I can yeah. say that. Oh my God. The unsung heroes of every artist is a tour manager because nothing is harder than a day on, than a day off, because you are wrangling a bunch of people walking around the city, missing call times, ending up at random events or restaurants, and you're calling cell phones going, the bus leaves in 10 minutes. Where are you? Um, and it's um, it's it's a big deal. So let me ask you this. Uh, what are your uh, guitar heroes? Because you mentioned uh, a guitarist earlier, but I was going to mention uh, before you even get into yours, if you haven't heard of him, his name's Danny Gatton. Mm. Do you know Danny Gatton?
1: No, but I'm definitely going to check him okay. out.
0: So Danny Gatton, unfortunately, you know, uh, passed away years ago, but there's a, there's an infamous video on YouTube of Danny Gatton playing um, at, I think it was Austin city limits, but he, he takes a beer bottle and then throws a towel over the neck of his Telecaster, an actual towel, and he plays slide guitar over a full with a full bottle of beer, a full bottle. It's overflowing and spilling as he's using it as the slide over a towel on his guitar, and it will blow your mind. You've never seen anything like this, and the guy is one of the most incredible guitarists of all time, and nobody knows who he is. He, he was a big deal in the 90s, but it's been wow. so long he's just he's just forgotten, but I think you'll really enjoy that. But anyway, that that was that was for you to check out. But who are your heroes?
1: Uh, in, in terms of guitar in general, yeah, say, yeah, uh, yeah, one of the I mean, I don't feel like he gets the credit that he that he deserves, but seeing in con, seeing him in, having seen him in concert, John Mayer hands down one of the best guitar players I've ever seen, best oh. performers I've ever seen. Oh. Uh, I also, I mean, obviously
0: Lindsay Buckingham, yeah. he's a legend. Oh my God. Dude, um, people, people never, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off, but That's dude, okay. people never cite Lindsay the way they should? Like that guy, the first time I saw Fleetwood Mac, I thought to myself, is, is he really that good? <laughs> I had no idea.
1: No, he's, I mean, the, one of the things that I recognize uh, that I noticed, um, came to this realization a couple of years ago was how talented every single band member in Fleetwood Mac is that they're, the t- I mean, Mick Fleetwood in terms of, dr- I mean, he's definitely hands down one of the top drummers, um, uh, everybody, I mean, to, to the vocalists, to Stevie and, and mm. Christine, uh, they're just top of their game. Um, trying to think of uh, Monty, of course, I mentioned, but, um, and, and there are others and they're not coming to mind now, but, uh, and, 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 and Wilson from heart, I think she's.
0: Oh, oh, dude. Yes. Yes. Um, so I'm going to give you a very quick John Mayer story. So I was living in Athens, Georgia, going to school there. So I I was a Georgia bulldog and, (laughs) um, uh, John Mayer, was living in Atlanta at the time um, and working the door at a place called Eddie's attic. So in exchange for him checking IDs and working the door, John Mayer was able to play Eddie's attic Sunday night, open mic. Right? So that's how he got started. And I'd heard about him, but never seen him. And then uh, I'm living in Athens and a friend of mine goes, Hey, Hey, this guy named John Mayer is opening for us tonight. You should come check him out. He's really talented. So this 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 friend of mine had a band called I think it was called Gaslamp or Gaslight, I cannot remember. It was, it was a terrible band. But they, but they were they're were playing the 40 Watt Club and John Mayer was opening. So I got there to just check out this kid named John Mayer. Well, there was a whopping 7 people in the audience. 7. I counted. Wow. and and but the merch table i'll never forget this the merch table was basically Uh, is as, as if you were going to see Miley Cyrus at a stadium with John Mayer merch, it was like John Mayer wristbands like that you could slap on. Remember the slap, the slap (laughs) wristbands and like, and shirts and hats. And I'm like, there's seven people here. So I go over to the merch table and I'm looking at his merch and this guy's like, you want to buy something? I'm like, um, I'm good. I'm good. And, um, his dad was the merch guy. John Mayer's dad was okay. running merch. I swear. And I was like, wow. I was like, this kid comes from money or something. I don't know what's going on, but he was overdoing it for the amount of people that were there. But I was still impressed, right? He was very talented. After the show, John Mayer comes to the merch table, and I couldn't help myself because I was like, he's good. He's, he's good. And um, I start talking to him, and he literally says to me, I'm going to be the biggest artist in the world. He goes, I'm going to be selling out arenas like in a very, in a very cocky young college kid way. And I was the same age, right? Like John's maybe like a year older than me. And I remember thinking, wow, you're very sure of yourself, (laughs) you know, (laughs) Um, um, which we all were. And you have to have that attitude, but I didn't appreciate how good he was at that moment. I wasn't ready for it. If that makes sense. Like I knew he was good but i didn't appreciate how good until later but that that's kind of that was my intro to john mayer
1: that's awesome i mean what an exp- what an what a what a moment what an experience to have and to see like to experience to to experience meeting him before he you know i mean even i mean the thing is he was i'm sure he was always super talented uh as a musician but of course as well as you know over time he's grown even even better. I remember seeing him at the uh, Central Park, whatever the stage is called there, um, yeah. in two thousand and two. So he'd just come out with um, forget the title his debut album, which was amazing. But now having seen him, and it was an it was a really incredible show. But now having seen him, my the last time I saw him live was at the um, I think it's the AT and T Center in San Antonio. It was uh, late twenty nineteen, and I mean this is an arena versus a stage in Central Park, but he blew me away. Like, seriously, um, I, I think there's certain people that just have it in them that are, that are, you know, prodigies. I think he's a, I think he's a musical prodigy, but I'm sure he's also grown into that. You know, he's grown and evolved as the years have gone on.
0: Yes, yes, yes. And, and you know what? There's nothing more attractive to me than a musician who can get out of their own bullshit and get out of their own way and do things that isn't for their brand. John Mayer is now with the grateful dead. First of all, he basically gave a middle finger to his entire young female fan base and said, I don't care if you get it. I don't care (laughs) if you like it. I'm going to go do this thing because I love music. I love music. And that's, what's most important to me. And Very few musicians ever, ever tread that fucking water ever.
1: Very true. Very good point.
0: And, and the fact that he got the gig himself, I mean, did you see the documentary where, uh, uh, what's his name? Uh, Bob Weir. Yeah. Bob Weir was saying, yeah, we heard John Mayer wanted to uh, audition. And you're like, yeah, we, we let him come in because he's John Mayer. We were just, you know, we just kind of wanted to meet him and hang out with him. And then we couldn't believe how good he was. This is basically what Bob Weir said. Like, we had no idea. And after, like, one rehearsal, we were like, yeah, you got the gig kind of thing.
1: Wow, I have to check that out. I haven't seen it. Um, I did see, uh, speaking of documentaries, the David Geffen documentary a few weeks ago that blew me away
0: did you have you seen that one i i have and that also blew me away so what about that uh stood out to you
1: i i always knew of David geffen you know a huge i'm also a huge Joni mitchell fan so i and of course he worked with a lot of musicians What I learned about um what i thought was fascinating was um that he was a manager by not doing the typical like i feel like there's a there's a there's certain roles that a that a manager of an artist is supposed to do. He did them, but the way that he managed the artist was simply by championing them, both working with them like on a personal level, in addition to on the, the career business side, and that's how he became such a really um, talented. Uh, I mean, in in addition being a manager, I mean he. He's done so much, so many other things too as Mm. as well. But just the fact that that's what made him a great manager was because he, because he was with them day in, day out, and not just on the career side.
0: That's right. That's right. And you know what? Watching that documentary, I was surprised how many people demonized him. They're like, Mm -hmm. you know, you know, they're like, oh well, David was great early on, but then he screwed us over. And I'm like, well, okay, Don Henley. Well, here you are sitting with 180 million dollars to your name and you can't do any more in the music business there's nothing more you could do in the music business and you couldn't be more of an icon and the guy who wrote you your first checks and gave you a record deal and told you guys to form a band was David Geffen He's the one who believed in something you didn't. You all wanted to be touring with Linda Ronstadt. Instead, he pulled you off the road with Linda and put you in a band. Like that's, that's who this guy is. You got to take a step back. But anyway, that, that, that's the thing that caught me
1: from that. Yeah, no, no, no. I, I think that, I think you, you put it perfectly that, but that's it though. It's the, it's the vision and the the passion he had for these artists and wanting to see them succeed because he actually cared about them as people versus as a commodity. Right. Right. Me
0: well, I- that's what separates the, 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 good from the bad in my opinion, yeah. in the music business, who are the actual musical visionaries? Anybody can look at stats. Anybody can look at data and go, well, this is a safe bet. Well, you might as well be racing horses. literally right? Like you might as well, what we're here to do is go, I have experience in music. I believe in music and I know how to spot a star and a hit song when I hear it period. And there are very few of those people left. Very few.
1: Yeah, it's true. I I think um, it's always interesting. I mean, even, even even outside of music, but when you look at film and TV and so forth, I think Seinfeld, for instance, is always a great example of one on a uh, on a television level, which was that it was projected to be a complete failure, and it wasn't until I think season two when it took off, and they almost canceled it. So, but wow. and it ended up becoming one of the biggest TV shows of all time. And you look at same thing with musicians; it's some of the albums and some of the artists that people passed on early on because they thought they're, Oh, they, they won't, they won't sell. They're, they're too different. We don't know how to package them. Those are the very artists and the very albums that ended up becoming iconic. Like I, so it's often when you're not playing it safe. And I think I actually feel like that's a, one of the bigger issues right now, as far as the, maybe not just the music industry, but in terms of, let's say the industry as a whole, that it's so focused on data and playing it safe and not focused on the uniqueness of what what is what you know of the artist or of the film or of the show or vice versa or, or right. vice versa. Right. I mean?
0: that, that, that that's absolutely correct I mean um, you know well look, at the end of the day, technology is turning us all into machines <laughs> um, yeah. and um, we have to hold on to what's left of the guts, the gut feeling. Um, yeah. And, 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 you know, I was recently sitting with, um, with uh, insert name drop, but Randy Jackson oh, and wow. Randy said to me, cause I was, we were in a meeting about some stuff working on and we got into the data discussion. Like, well, you know, what about this data? And like, if we could just use this data to, to, to identify this artist. And Randy basically stopped the meeting. And he goes, he goes, Edge, can you name one artist in the past 30 years that is a household name that sells out arenas that is an actual fucking star yeah. star that was identified by data? Can you name one? And wow. and I went, no, I cannot. And he goes, and nor will you. And another person in the room said, not yet. And I thought, nah, that's not the answer. It's not not yet. It will never happen. If you're using data to identify talent you've missed the boat because everybody else has already beat you to it. Does that make sense? Like if I have the data, so does everybody else, right? Like you, 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 you don't look at a, a baseball pitchers career stats and go, I think this is a good pitcher. Let's sign him to the, to the Atlanta Braves. No, you're at his high school game. First, the scout is there first watching this kid pitch. And you know, that's a talent. I'm going to make sure I follow him as his stats grow, I can see the talent. And it's the same thing with music. Once you have the data, so does everybody else. That's not how you identify. It's actually how you capitalize. It's a big difference.
1: Yes. Oh, that's a perfect. I, I just love how you put that. Because um, the, the thing is, data can't identify an enigma. I think da- what data can identify is predictive. I don't know if this is putting it the right way, but predictability but when you have most icons, most legendary musicians are enigmas. There's something that you cannot put your finger on in terms of who they are, what kind of music they, they put out or that right. they create um, right. because it's so unique. That's what people appreciate about them. So, yeah, I'm sure you could use data to forecast um, or, or identify a – garden variety, pop star, but I don't think, and not, and I love pop music, so I'm not, I'm not crafting sure. pop music, but I don't think you can use data to identify someone, uh, uh, like I said, an, an enigma. And you also can't use data necessarily to forecast where an artist is going to go because there's so many other factors that are at play of, as far as what experiences are they having in their own life that are adding to, um, their own, what they you know, their own creativity, um, how they're, how they're learning, how they're growing as, as they're going uh, on throughout the career. Like we were just talking about John Mayer, like could data have, I wonder if data could have predicted or identified a John Mayer And is that John Mayer that they identified in 2001 or two, or is that John Mayer in 2021? Like human beings.
0: That's exactly right. This is, this is where the music industry fails, right? So compare it to another industry. Could Um, you, could you identify Johnny Depp before he was Johnny Depp based on data? What, what, what an absurd idea that is, right? Like, oh, well, had we had more Johnny Depp data early on, we would have known he'd be starring in Pirates of the Caribbean and fear and loathing Las Vegas. What, what are you talking about? No, the audience reacted to him and he's so talented at what he does that it mattered. It just happened to matter. There's no data. And the idea that there's streaming numbers and sales numbers for CDs somehow tricks us into thinking we can get ahead of talent. Yes. No, you cannot. No, you cannot.
1: Well, in order to have data about a Johnny Depp, you have to have multiple Johnny Depps. And there are no other Johnny Depps. So, I mean... (laughs) Right, right. Great point. Great point. So, how are you going to how are you going to project? You don't have enough data because like I said, there are no other Johnny Depp's and the same thing, music and it's, you know, uh, you know, with anybody, any, any, anything, uh, you know, every single per, I always say this about brands as well, that every single, there are no competitors. Every brand has its own DNA. Every person obviously has its own DNA. People are brands in, in a lot of cases as well. So you can't, there are there's nobody else to compare mm. a Johnny Depp to to have enough data to forecast another Johnny Depp because there is only one Johnny Depp.
0: See that's that's a gorgeous analogy. Well put. Well put. Um, so uh, let's let's get into some other stuff real quick. So where are you from? Were you born and raised? So
1: I was born in a small. Blue-collar town in New Jersey called Freehold, which actually is uh, Bruce Springsteen's hometown, the one that he wrote my hometown about. So um, nice. I guess I was born into this love of music because, <laughs> because of where I was
0: from. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. And then, uh, did you watch that series with him and Barack? I thought it was really cool or the, the I'm sorry, the podcast. Kind yeah. Of I yeah. listened
1: to most of it. I think I may have missed like one episode and they talked a lot about freehold Inn, in it, which was really cool. Of course, to hear. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Okay. So you come, I mean, so you come from a blue collar kind of working town, um, yeah. Were you, were you playing a lot of gigs growing up? Like, were you hitting the bar circuit and doing all that stuff? Or were you very much like a bedroom musician turned publicist turned professional musician?
1: <laughs> I will say so. So here's the thing. So I took up a number of instruments and never quite picked it up. So I have an appreciation for music and very much. like I mean, I don't go a day without... Like I have my routine. I go to the coffee shop. I sit there and I listen to music. If it's And so I, I've always had this love of music. I just, it's never translated into making music. I could hear it and I can I, I could feel it, but I can't play it. So I was going concert after concert. I was sitting outside of concerts all day. I was driving, once I drove across country to go see a concert, like, so that was very much who I was, but I never actually played music.
0: Right. 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 So um, who encouraged you to actually do this then? Was it just you? Was that you, were you a self-starter or did you, did you have some support?
1: I, well, I would say for the most part, so I had support from like my father who identified, but he's, I mean, he's an HR guru. I mean, that's been his, he, he's always been an HR so he can identify where somebody should belong. I, I think and he identified where i belonged which was as a as a publicist but i think there there was also um, needing to uh, to to be a self starter as well because when i was when i was working for this real estate pr firm um, everybody around me was like you can't go off on your own you're only i don't know i was like 25 26 you know you don't have enough you don't, you haven't worked the career ladder yet. It's too early on. You're making a big mistake. And I still felt deep down inside that I need to go off and do this myself. And I, and I left that job. I was literally my first real position and I left it to go off with, you know, my company grapevine. So, so I would say there's both, you know, there was the people in my life that identified and recognized and, pushed me to um, sort of uh, maybe not go at it alone, but but to go off and chase my my dreams or identify what career, right. I, you know, but then there was also me sort of, I was very, I mean, like a lot of teenagers, I was very rebellious as a teen. I was always, <laughs> I didn't want to conform. I wore like black vinyl pants to school with Marilyn Manson T-shirts and Atlantis T-shirts and Tori, like
0: yes, I'm- yes. Well, but 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 were, were you were you growing mushrooms under <laughs> your kitchen sink like no. I was to pay the bills? I was
1: no, <laughs> no, I, no, 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 I didn't. But that, but I'd like to hear more though.
0: No, 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 no. You know what? I can't indict myself that quickly. Um, <laughs> but um you know what? That actually kind of brings me back. So. Of the '90s artists, of course, there's the the Alanises and the the obvious like Nirvana's and stuff. But yeah, the unsung heroes to me of the '90s were uh, the, the ones that were just you know the the press gave them a little less love. Like you know, to me, yeah. Allison Chains is one of the mm-hmm. most unbelievable bands of all time. Unbelievable, right. like the three part harmonies and just the stuff that Jerry Cantrell and Lane did together kind of blew my mind. Um, But there's also, uh, there's also bands like space hog where without, without a song, like in the meantime, I don't know what the nineties are for me. I really don't know. Like I I used to sit in front of the TV and wait for the, in the meantime video to come on MTV. Cause I, I couldn't afford the CD. My dad wouldn't buy it. And there was no, there's no way to just like, you know, on demand, play the song, but I was obsessed with it. So I had MTV on 24 seven in my house waiting for that to come on. And when it did, it was a game changer, but like, there's so many of those examples I can give, but what are, what are some of the examples for you of the nineties where you're like, you know what? Nobody talks about this band or this thing, but it changed my life.
1: Good, Really good question. I mean, it could be disputed. I mean, I was a huge. Uh, I mean, in the nineties, I was also a huge um, Annie DeFranco fan. I think she's also oh, she's the most amazing guitarist as well. Now that I now that I think of it, you
0: um, just blew my mind, Steve. <laughs> Re- Revelling and Reckoning is one of my favorite oh. records. There's there's a song called on. Uh, Un- no, it's called Gray.
1: Yeah, song Gray. I hear it right now. My I hear it. Yeah.
0: Oh my God. Anybody listening to this, go listen to Ani DeFranco's gray on, on, on reveling and reckoning. It's, it's beautiful, it's in a drop C tuning. Every, every note on the guitar is in C and it's Mm -hmm. just gorgeous. Anyway, sorry, go ahead, Steve.
1: No, I, you know what I have to, I have to tell you, I love that that the album that you brought up was reveling and reckoning because I started to get into Ani, um, maybe a couple of album albums prior. I think it was Little, uh, Little Plastic, I'm messing it up now, Little Plastic Castle. It yep. was around that time. And then I went back and I listened to her back, you know, the, the previous albums. But it wasn't really until Revelling reveling and Reckoning that it just it hit me has, uh, how talented she was because she was so uh, open to experimenting like and and evolving as one of her albums is called. You know, it's like like every album was so different and that's when she sort of brought in like jazz and funk. And it was really like the first Mm. time that I heard that kind of music. So I, I I love that you brought that particular album up as, you know, rather than a, um, you know, one of her albums that is often cited, you know,
0: or connected to Yeah, 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 commercial albums. Yeah. Well, you know what it was? I mean, I'm sure you remember these days, but you used to walk into like, I guess they called it blockbuster music or whatever the fuck it was back then. But like, (laughs) I remember walking into blockbuster music at a mall in Atlanta. Right. And they had like 30 different pods set up of albums that were featured that week. And so you could, as a listener, as a teenager or whatever, walk in and throw in these random headphones and hit play on an album and an artist you'd never heard. And if you liked it, there was a stack of CDs to go by. I didn't know who Ani DeFranco was. I had no idea. And I remember putting that on and listening to it and going, what is this? Like, what is this thing? Cause Mm -hmm. I, I was a guitar player and I'd never heard tunings like that. I, I, I was 13 years old and my brain couldn't handle the tunings. I'm like, wait, 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 this isn't a G chord. This isn't an a minor. What is this? Um, and I bought it that day. I borrowed money from my dad. I bought the double album and I went home and I went, I don't know who this is, but she's my new favorite.
1: Do you well this brings you brought up a couple um, points connected to that, which were going into a store because Barnes and Noble used to have that too, where you would go in or, or Virgin Records.
0: Yes, Barnes and Noble was a big one. Yes. Good good point. But
1: also having to work for a song or an album versus now, literally you have anything you want. At like it's so easy now, and which is really great as well. And uh, but but I remember like for instance taking a VHS tape, sticking it in the 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 player, recording uh, music videos, and then going back and watching like Stay, watching Hand in My Pocket, watching whatever was playing that I was uh, really um, you know loving at the time or. Or go, or getting through, was it Columbia Columbia House? I think that yeah, was... Col-
0: yeah, Columbia House. Yeah, yeah that's
1: right. Tori Amos. I mean, and also through a friend, but I remember seeing like Boys for Pele listen. I was like, that's speaking to me. For some reason, that artwork is speaking to me. Like you used to have to work harder to hear a song. You'd have to call the radio and ask them to play it. And then you'd have to sit there and listen. And I wonder... What the if there's any difference now, if it's just more of like apples and oranges, or if there is a difference in terms of how it is to be growing up as a teen or in your twenties or whatever in the 2020s and what it's like to not have to work for a song. <laughs> that's the best way. Well
0: well, you know, we, we we could romanticize today's world. We could lie, we could lie to ourselves and say well, you know, today's world is a different, but it's it's the same. No, it's not. No, it's not. It's not even close. The the, the experience of walking into a record store or a Barnes and & Noble and then hearing an album you never heard was magical. Like, like you said, either the artwork spoke to you or the music did, and you had to make a decision on the spot. Do I want to spend $15 on this? Do I want to do this? Yeah. Do I want to do this? Or... You went to the record store with a melody in your head, but you had no idea who it was. I remember I did this with Semisonic. It was a song oh, called. It was a song called. Uh, I think it was called "On the Run" or something like that. Yeah, um, their their first their first single, way before closing time. And I went to the record store, and I hummed it to the guy behind the counter, and I was like, "It's called." And he, and I, you know, he could have easily been like what are you talking about? Please leave the store, sir. But instead, he goes, oh, yeah, that's semi-sonic. It's on row four. It's halfway down. I went, what? And, you know, that doesn't exist. Imagine right now walking in to a Target, to the person behind the counter at Target, and going, I'm looking for this song. It's called sounds like this. And they go, yeah, right over there. That's not. It's not going to happen,
1: right? No. Now they'll just tell you to shazam it, uh, or there's there is app apparently <laughs> where you can hum a song. I, I haven't used it yet, but there's apparently an app where you can hum a song, and it'll tell you if it figures out what that song Oh,
0: is. oh! I mean, I mean, yes. Is is it is it cool that technology has solved some of these problems? Yeah, but like to your point, is there something magical about working for it? There is.
1: There yeah, was, yeah. there's a d- deeper appreciation. I think, uh, like, I definitely don't want to be somebody who is like, oh, it's better in my, you know, because I, I mean, there, I think there are things now that are, that we wanted also, I mean, speaking for myself, like earlier, like back in, let's say in the 90s, that we wished would be the case and now is, where we don't have to stick CD's in the car player anymore where we could just simply stream it. Things that have made it easier. So there's right. definitely pluses and minuses. There's amazing, amazing achievements and amazing things going on now that we probably wished were the case was the case back then. But then there's also other other things as well that are just not the same.
0: That's so true. Well, I mean, to be fair though, I probably bought room for squares twelve times. That's because- true. because i scratched the hell out of it i gave it to friends i was a disaster i was in love with that record um and 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 in some way i think that's such a nice homage to the artist like you know what i love this so much i bought it 12 times
1: yes you know there's there's certain albums uh, even, even of you know, let's say, let's take a, uh, a an artist that you're a huge fan of. There's certain albums that they've released that there's just some sort of, like, there's some that are just great. And then there's others where they become part of your life and you need them. You need that album. Like, in the past, it was buying the CD over and over again. Or maybe it's buying vinyl now or something. But it's needing to, like, you have such a connection with that with that album that it represents, it almost represents you. And it's not just simply listening to it, but it's that you need it as part of your, uh, you need to showcase it or you need to, you need to have it um, available.
0: Yeah. You have to have it on hand also as a gift. I used to use CDs as gifts. It was like, I, I had an extra copy of some of my favorite albums on hand. Cause it's like, once my friend heard it in my car and they loved it, I would reach in the back seat and be like, here you go. Here's your copy. Yes. You know, and like they're like, What? And then once I started learning how to burn my own CDs, which sounds so prehistoric, but but it was it was a thing, right? We you could burn CDs, or before that was like you know, duping cassettes, like all that yeah. stuff. But it it was amazing. You you'd be like, you know what? I'll make you a mixtape. Here you go. Boom. <laughs> you know,
1: it was well, so cool because you're like you're, you're you you want to share that journey with somebody it's it's not just an album it's not just music it's really i mean when you hear an album from beginning to finish, to to end it really is you're, you're going on a journey and so you want to i see it as you want to share that journey with somebody else you've been on the journey you go on the journey you want others to 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 be on the journey as well to experience that journey as well
0: yeah. I used to call it the gurney journey. You know, I want this album to kill you. I want you to lay on a gurney cause it's so good. And that's the journey. Um, <laughs> <I love> that. <laughs> um, so, um, so real quick. So um, in terms of what's next for you, what are you, what are you focused on? What's exciting for you? What's happening? So, uh,
1: so our company um, is starting to veer very strongly in the direction of, of tech um obviously so music is my my own love and I love representing musicians um publicizing them managing them I don't often manage them but it's starting to take hold but
0: uh, Care- careful careful I'll I'll help you with that yeah <laughs> But,
1: but now we're starting to move much more in the direction of uh, tech clients. So we, we recently launched or uh, formalized uh, a division devoted to our tech clients, and it's becoming the most rapidly growing uh, division. Um, so in addition to you know, our celebrity clients, so we represent uh, William Shatner, uh, one of our clients for the last few years, which is an honor to be representing him. Lisa Loeb, Solai, et cetera. We also represent a lot of tech clients. So that's sort of where where I'm working, uh, where we're working at the moment and what's growing the the quickest. Uh, so I would say that's probably <laughs> what, you know, what's taking up most of my time at the moment uh, is, is that particular division.
0: Congratulations. That's really cool. I mean, you know, look, if, if you can't marry the two uh, you know, the two things, it's not going to work anyway. Right. If you don't have tech, sure. um, you know, what are you doing? But, uh, yeah. a, a very, a, a very little known fact about me is I used to be, um, uh, public relations person at Edelman PR. So oh, uh, yes, yeah, so I used to work at Edelman. And so my, my, my accounts were, you'll laugh. My accounts were My first account was NASCAR. And then I had Cirque du Soleil. So simultaneously, oh I had NASCAR and Cirque du Soleil. If you can imagine that, and that then is two polar opposites. <laughs> oh yeah, and then I had Starbucks, Ooh. and then I had Aflac. So the Aflac account was really interesting because that was around the time that Gilbert Gottfried was still doing the uh, the, the Voice. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Aflac. yeah. yeah. <laughs>
0: <clears throat> Excuse me, and he gotten a lot of trouble at the time for some joke he made. And so yeah, he's a stand-up comedian, but apparently he made a joke that was unsavory. So we mm-hmm. had to replace him with a new voice. And that was a big part of my job. Wow.
1: Was, was scouting <laughs> somebody for the new, uh, the voice was that what
0: you were handling that? No, no, no. Or like the fallout of like, press and like, how come Gilbert Gottfried isn't the voice of Affleck or the duck anymore? And it was, uh, it was kind of funny, but, You know, I, I, I found myself one day I'd be at a NASCAR race. No joke. I'd be at a NASCAR race, you know, right next to the speedway cars whizzing by people with jackets on and 5,000 logos on their hat. And the next day I was sitting front row at Cirque du Soleil with a bunch of Montreal's (laughs) Montreal people doing, doing weird sort of contortion stuff. And I was like, this is my job. I get paid to do this? This is crazy. That's
1: the fun of it is is all the different because you literally could be working with one brand or another or one person or another and completely different and have a completely different experience day after day, which is such an amazing I mean I don't know that many, you know, working in other industries. Or or fields have that experience. A lot. A lot of the time, it's very much like one note. But in PR, de- depending on obviously if you're working for an agency or in house or so forth or, or, or whatever, it's often you're getting all these different, you know, sometimes polar opposite experiences. Which right. is so much fun.
0: Right. 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 So uh, when you say tech, though. Um, are you talking more uh, consumer tech, music tech? Um, is it a blend of the two? Uh, or is it something totally disconnected that I'm not aware of?
1: No, I would say it's it's a mix of consumer and B2B. So we have um, uh, a lot of fintech. We are working in privacy tech. Uh, we have worked uh, in the past uh, with streaming music tech, which I believe is what you... I'm, if, if I'm not you're streaming you're the uh you're the intersection of streaming and tech correct 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 yeah so um so it's kind of a blend so we've worked we've worked sort of uh, in myriad ways uh in terms of uh, with uh tech clients uh, and every day it's changing because you know it, it's growing so quickly but it's it's definitely a blend of b2b and, and consumer tech
0: man well you know what you're building a great business and obviously you've got trust, you know, when you, you, you've got some great clients. I mean, that's the name of the game of PR too. I mean, when I was at Edelman, we built this thing called the trust barometer. And at the time I thought this is silly. Like what is a trust barometer? And what it was, it was feedback from the clients across thousands of clients of like, how much do you trust your PR firm to represent you? And it was, it was really telling like that our trust barometer was well over the 90% like they trusted us to represent them and do the job. And that said everything to me. I said, you know what? PR is not about um, necessarily just the execution or just the image you give a client. It's actually how much they trust you. That, that's it. How much do they trust you to represent them the way they would represent themselves? And that's really hard to replicate. So you're, you're obviously doing that well.
1: Thank you. Well, my so my business partner, Garrett uh, McClure, he always says, clients have to like, know, and trust you. And I think because, you know, in the grand scheme of things, PR from one agency to another, I mean, there's different, you know, there's there's different uh, strategies employed and tactics and ways that, you know, one agency or one publicist might do things. But at the end of the day, it's really about, do you want to work with this person? Do you want to partner with this person or this company, I think that's, I think that's the most important. I mean, you don't want to work with what, even if, I mean, even if they're doing uh, an incredible job, you don't want to work with somebody day in and day out that you don't enjoy working with. You want to, you want to, and, 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 trust is a, is a big part of that. And I've always thought that in terms of, you know, it's kind of a slow and steady wins the race. Like there's no rush. This is, it's, it's a journey. So, I think every year we we grow every year I have different experiences um with different clients and so I, I just think the most important thing you can do is you know obviously make sure that you're um, you know you're always uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for I'm trying to say as, as far as your reputation goes I think that's the most mm. most important obviously you're gonna learn and grow things about your industry about PR and working with clients but but you're, you're right. The trust factor is you you can't replicate that. You can't artificially create it. Um, it's sort of like we were talking before about the enigma. You can't, there's no data around trust. Right. You either right. trust somebody or you don't, or you either trust a company or you don't.
0: Well, but, well you know, trust is earned, not given. Yes. And and there's some symmetry here to tie it all together between, you know, publicity and music and, you know, working with an artist or an artist working with a manager or a label, there is no, you just show up and get the gig. You know, there's a dating period. You have to date somebody. You got to learn to trust them. You can't just all of a sudden throw your, your chips in. you cannot. And if you understand that and you just put it really well, it's a long game. If you want to be trusted and you want to have great clients, or, or as an artist, if you want to flip it over, if you want to be an artist that makes it in this business, learn to play the long game. Don't use people. Don't shift around all the time. Don't just use people for the one thing and flip to the next. You got to make sure you're building trust because as my first manager put it, this guy named Matthew Mays, he said, be nice to everybody on the way up because you're going to see him on the way down. Yeah
1: yeah it's so true. It's so true and that could change on a dime. Yeah. Nobody knows what's gonna happen in you know in your career or life and and plus who you know so so for those that that try to rush it and successfully do so and all of a sudden become famous overnight or or have lots of money
0: doesn't last
1: then what? then what you you have no journey, you have no you have no it's like I always think about it like when you're playing video games as a kid, that if you were to beat all the the guardians of each level and beat the game, you're sitting there and you're like, "Well, I beat the game now, what? What's the point? Uh, so I'd rather you know the so much of what makes life amazing are the actual experiences that you have so if you win and you become famous and you have all this money and you're successful then what
0: right well hence hence my podcast right no shortcuts there are not i mean they're 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 literally that's why i started this because the the joke is on anybody who thinks there is a path to shorten the journey there is no path to shorten a journey there's this amazing documentary you you may have seen this. I hope you have. If you haven't, it's another on your homework list. Um, it's a documentary called uh King of Kong, Fistful of Quarters. Have you seen this?
1: No, but I'm putting it on my list immediately.
0: It's a documentary about the nerdiest Donkey Kong players on the planet from the 80s. They are still arch nemesis to this day these 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 group of guys who are in their late 50s maybe 60s now are obsessed with being the greatest donkey kong players like the arcade version like had to go to the arcade and play it and what's amazing is they actually get into that in a documentary they get into people who got the cheat books and were were figuring out trying to cheat the game and would come into the arcade and they had daddy's money and they'd spend you know twenty thousand dollars over a matter of weeks trying to prove they were better that you know than the other guys at Donkey Kong, but it never worked. It didn't work. It was these poor guys who were obsessed with the game and put the time in and just knew the craft and 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 built you know built the thing. Um but it's actually amazing to watch this because the similarities between the music business and the competitive video game business kind of blew my mind. I was like, wow. Any Anybody who's in the music business should watch this because the, the proof is like, it's all the same thing. A, you got to have the craft. B, you got to have the love for the game. You have to have the love for the game. Yeah. And then C, there's only so many players in that world. And if you burn a bridge, it's going to last forever. You're going to have to see those people forever.
1: Yeah, you can't fast track it. Yeah. That, yep. uh, first of all, I'm going to watch, the. I'm going to add the documentary to my list, but you're right. I mean, as far as just like, you know, no shortcuts, you, you can't fast track it. And again, what is the point? Like I never understood. And it's only the same thing goes for, you know, when you are able to open a door that you've got to keep the door open. It's the same thing that, you know, it, it takes, yes, it takes a lot to have to open the door, um, but you've got to keep, you've got to keep that career going and, and again, it's, it's the journey of the career. It's, it's though if you don't have those, um, uh, you know, quote unquote failures or those missteps or mistakes, then you can't appreciate, you can't appreciate the highs. You can't, if you don't have the lows, you can't appreciate the highs. You need both in order to really be, I think, fulfilled. Um, so yeah, I, I absolutely agree. I'm going to, I'm going to watch that.
0: <laughs> right on. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I I can get off topic pretty quick, but I think it was relevant. Um, well, look, Steve, before before I let you go, uh, is there any advice you would give uh, to the listeners in terms of um, you know what what you think is important and how you should position yourself to have a career doing what you're doing?
1: I think uh, just like we were talking about, I think the most important thing you can do is to 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 remember that it's not uh it's 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 not a sprint <laughs> it's a, it's a marathon uh you're you know it's 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 about playing the long game it's about staying in it and it's about finding a love whatever you do you know first you've got to identify and cultivate that passion and um and if it's something that you actually want to do as a career whether that's um play you know play music create music or Work with artists, or or it could be something completely outside of the industry. First, you've got to identify it within you, and then remember that it's not. There's no rush, you know. You experience every single part of it, um, and and you will be successful. There was a um, there was an interview with uh, Betty Davis that I saw um, a long time ago on YouTube. It's actually one of the best interviews I've ever seen with anybody, and she talks about. Um, you know, appreciating the journey, appreciating, like we're taking the smaller roles early on and that the money and everything else will come as long as what you're doing is real and it's not manufactured. So I think to me, that's the most important thing. And, uh, the other part of the advice is to listen to what others say, whether you want to hear it or not. Uh, and also to know when, uh, you need to listen to yourself, um, even when other people are telling you, uh, that it's, uh, that it's wrong.
0: Right. Right. Um, well, there's so much to unpack there. I kind of want to go into it, but I'm not going to. (laughs) (laughs) Um, well, look, Steve, it's been a pleasure, man. Um, you know, uh, I think you and I, uh, have a lot more to talk about on and offline, but, um, you know, Thank you. Thank you so much for giving your time. And I think people are going to love hearing this.
1: No, absolutely. And, and likewise, and it's a real pleasure. So I, I appreciate the the opportunity and, and it's great to connect and uh, and happy to uh, and would love to continue it.
0: Yeah, absolutely. All right, Steve. Well, we will be in touch. Talk soon.
1: Excellent. Thank you.
0: Take care.